0: Hi, this is Andrew Goodall and Charlie Goodchild and you're listening to the Health Space Podcast. This is the podcast where we dive deep into health-related questions and topical issues relevant to us all. The world of health and medicine is messy, full of contrasting opinions and misleading advice. We will challenge myths and common misconceptions by exploring the evidence and speaking to leading experts along the way. We are physiotherapists, and have been friends since university and share the same belief that everyone deserves the opportunity to access high quality up-to-date health information when it comes to health we believe that better never ends thanks for listening and let's dive straight in
1: just like our previous episode with Alex Quinn where we talked all about running this was another episode that we recorded much earlier on in the year and then later decided that it fitted a lot better into season two where we're speaking a lot more about exercise so here we go
0: Uh, Welcome to another episode of the Health Space podcast with me, Andrew Goodall, and Charlie Goodchild. Uh, Today, we've got an esteemed colleague of mine who is here to chat all things shoes and feet. Um, I've worked with him for a few years now. He seems to get less and less uh, benefit from the barnet on his head year by year, Um, (laughs) similar to Charlie, really. Um, the follicular challenge we like to call them. Brothers Um, from another mother. Brothers from another mother yes. Um, So today we have Ian Griffiths with us. Um, Ian Griffiths is a podiatrist he works uh, across a number of sites but I work with him at Pure Sports Medicine Um, and we're excited to talk with him today to sort of put us right on a few things and bust some myths as we like to do on the Health space podcast uh, and generally give us some information so that we can all run a bit faster, move a bit better and uh, generally feel fresh on our feet. So Charlie, you got anything to say about uh, Ian the guest?
1: Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing him talk uh, I've heard him talk at a couple of conferences prior to working at Pure Sports Medicine they've they've always gone down really well I was always in, entertained by those um, I, I'm sure he'll have something to say about Verruca's finding toenails that kind of stuff so we'll, we'll sort of see where, where we go with it I reckon I think it'll be good fun yeah should be good fun
0: right Ian uh, let's kick us off tell, tell our listeners a little bit about you I suppose give us a little uh, rundown on where you're at career wise and um, what led you to become a podiatrist, and maybe what even is a
2: podiatrist? Yeah, so th- th- thank you for the very kind introduction. You, you know, it could have could have gone anywhere, wasn't it? I was sweating when you when you started talking about me there because I know you've got a lot on me. Thank you for keeping it clean. Uh, let me let me answer that question backwards and talk about what what a podiatrist is because um, I'm just more comfortable talking about that than I am about myself, if I'm honest. And uh, for those that don't know, and hopefully hopefully most do, but for those that don't, podiatry is the is the branch of healthcare that's sort of devoted to the study and understanding and assessment and management of conditions of the foot, the ankle, the low extremity. And obviously that sounds quite broad and we're sort of one of those very spoiled professions that, that we get to then decide if we wish to sort of subspecialize within that, that field as to what we want to do. So we've got the pediatric foot, the geriatric foot, the, the at-risk foot, uh, people with diabetes uh, rheumatoid arthritis etc so wound care tissue viability sort of things Uh, we've got podiatric dermatology which is kind of stuff that Chaz just referred to the the skin lesions the nail dystrophy and uh, and podiatric surgery and then ultimately my 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 little uh, my little bubble that i live in which is the musculoskeletal slash sort of sports podiatry world so uh, i think it's a pretty pretty awesome profession clearly biased of course it's been very good to me i have lots of people sort of at the stage of uh, sort of applying to university who sort of every now and then drop into my inbox find my website and sort of ask me what is podiatry because I don't think unlike you boys in physiotherapy it's not one of those things you necessarily grow up as a teenager sort of knowing about or or aspiring to be because the podiatrist doesn't run on the pitch with the wet sponge like like you boys do on a on a Saturday afternoon at three o'clock so to speak so I'm always willing to talk more about it. If, if anyone wants to talk more about it, they can get hold of me. But I won't bore anyone more with that. How did I get into it? Well, that's a, that's a pretty long story that I can make shorter, but it's also boring. I don't think I can make it less boring. So let's just say I was really close to studying pharmacy and it was just a chance meeting with a guy at, at night school Because in order to get I, I messed around going back a step. i messed around a bit at, at school and left school with only one A level in biology, did some Further study via college and an apprenticeship in in pharmaceutical science, and did quite well at that. And then someone said to me, "You know what? You could possibly get into university and study pharmacy here, but you might need A level chemistry." Now, I've never been a big fan of chemistry. I went to night school, thought I better study chemistry. So I was working in in a pharmacy department of a hospital all day. I was going to night school to study chemistry, and I was not enjoying it. And the chap next to me was also, you know, working all day, but in night school because he wanted to go to uni. I was like, "What's your what's your deal?" He said, I'm I'm gonna go to university and be a podiatrist. And I was like, 19 years old, I was like, what the hell is a podiatrist? Never heard of it before. And he sort of, for the next hour, instead of listening to the lecturer talk chemistry, as we probably should have been, he was basically telling me all about podiatry, giving, giving me all the all the areas of specialism, a bit like I just did to you. I left that thinking, I I think I'd prefer the sound of that to pharmacy. Made a few calls and turns out I didn't need a-level chemistry to study podiatry. So it was win-win for me. I could leave night school, which I wasn't enjoying. within that was in kind of like a January, February, the following September, I was I was studying podiatry at university. So it was a chance meeting with a stranger. And I don't know who it was. And you know, what? I don't even know if he went on to become a podiatrist. Um, and I'd, I'd love to know. And I don't know how I find that out. But yeah, that was my kind of route into podiatry. And then I did a master's degree in sports, uh, sports injury. And as Andy's already said, worked with him at pure sports medicine, along with a couple of
1: other places. So yeah, it's been a profession that's been really good to me. I think it's interesting you mentioned there about not really knowing what it's about. You're right. I mean, prior to being involved in physio, I didn't have a clue what podiatry was either. And I wonder if that's in some ways a bit of a blessing because so many people go into physio thinking, oh, it's that guy that runs on the pitch. It's that person that just messes around with the ankle, you know, and, and it's the ma- they do a bit of massage, they do a bit of this. And, and then they get to uni and they realize that it's so much more whereas if you're going to go into podiatry the chances are you've you probably have looked it up properly researched it or spoken to someone who is a podiatrist for example so it's probably a blessing in some ways that you, you go in with your eyes wide open you know what you're getting into
2: yeah that's a good call um we we as a as an entire the royal we as a professional are, are always trying to work out how we can Educate people better about who we are, what we do—not just um, our colleagues, but like we say, the, the next generation of podiatrists. Because, uh, as we know, numbers—if uh, if numbers don't get up and without getting political bursaries and things like that—and who knows what the world looks like study-wise with a pandemic now, uh, your your profession in future generations becomes at risk. So we're we're always trying to get 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 the word out as to what podiatry is. But I don't think there are many people exactly as you say that that probably start. Their, their bachelor's degree their undergrad podiatry degree without a good understanding of what the next three years are going to look like whereas probably the case like you say that, that people start physiotherapy degrees not being aware they've got a respiratory rotation in icu coming for example they probably just think you're just going to be like you say giving people crab walks every day And i know you boys don't do that
0: <laughs> mate there's nothing wrong with crab walks it fixes probably 99 percent of
2: problems and that's where foot all foesies are there for that 1% The crab books don't fix. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, and so you sort of touched on it, you work in the sort of musculoskeletal area of podiatry, sports podiatry, I suppose. What's the things that you tend to deal with with regards to that? So give our listeners a little bit of an idea of the kind of things that
2: are going to walk into your door working in your sort of area of podiatry. To the point that a lot of people don't know what podiatry is, as we just said, it's reasonably unlikely we that we may be the first point of contact for people so for example if you do get a foot or an ankle or a low limb problem as a as an athlete or just a a person in society it's highly unlikely you think better go and see the podiatrist so a lot of our our patients vast percentage come from our colleagues like like you boys like physiotherapists we work with consultants etc so most of our referrals are, are are coming from another health professional more often than not which is why I think it's so important that we educate other health professionals as to the role we play in the team. And I know I'm preaching to Converted here because you you chaps know this, but for the the sake of your listeners, I'd like to think that our role in the team and the value we bring to to the sort of overall package of care that the patient's getting from a multidisciplinary team is that sort of insight or that opinion on lower limb mechanics, lower limb dynamics, so how how the foot is uh, sort of interacting with the environment around it how it behaves and what that may mean for the, the, the stresses and strains on various tissues of the limb. Um, and that's not to say we only see foot problems as Andy knows, we share a lot of patients with, with knee problems. Um, and we're really, again, whether it be knee, whether it be hip, whether it be the tibia, whether it be i.e. the shin, whether it be calf, Achilles, we're generally looking at the lower limb with particular focus on the foot and trying to identify, is there any contributing component. Here is there any sort of a, what we call ascending components? Is the foot behaving in a way that may be putting load on the knee in a certain way? Or is the way this person's foot moves or the footwear that they're wearing contributing to their shin pain, their Achilles pain, their calf pain? And and as Andy knows, sometimes that's not the case. Um, you know, we, we, we're giving an opinion and we say, you know what, everything here looks good, you're in an appropriate shoe back to the physio do your homework uh, other times there's a lot more a lot more of a discussion to be had and a lot more i guess suggestions that are made footwear changes or things inside footwear or, or alongside the physio reinforcing behavior changes and things so we could be seeing anything from sore big toes to to give the the classic kind of diagnoses that people will have heard of the plantar fascia pain or plantar fasciitis open quote close quote Achilles you know, tendonopathy, well, any any of the major tendons around the ankle, tibialis posterior, the peronei. they can all get kind of grizzly, and, and co- they can all complain at times. I guess we see a lot of the, the, the midfoot pain that no one really likes because the midfoot's confusing and, and complex. Exercise-induced shin pain, patellofemoral pain, we see a uh, you know an absolute truckload of patellofemoral pain. They're probably the big the
1: big ones. So if we if we look a little bit more then about someone who might not know about those particular conditions but they've got some symptoms i don't know a runner or or someone who's exercising or even just anyone that's not come across podiatry and and hasn't really spoken to a medical professional what might what should they look out for that might be something that a podiatrist would see rather than another health professional for example are there things that would more suit a podiatrist as a first port of call rather than a physio I don't
2: think so, and I certainly don't get too upset that we're not the first port of call. Because to be honest, in 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 all the aforementioned conditions scenarios, if I am the first port of call, then ninety eight percent of the time, if not one hundred, then I'm I'm bringing I'm bringing in one of my physio colleagues anyway. So, if they see me first, they're probably going to uh, have one of my physio colleagues pulled in on the case. So, if they see a physio first and then I get pulled in, it's ultimately the same the same endpoint. So, I don't get too upset that we're not the first port of call and i'm very spoiled that uh you know with andy and also the other team we've got there the, the guys and the girls are really pretty sharp so the ones that they do get where fairly early on they think okay maybe we should get ian in you know, sooner rather than later usually they're the ones that kind of uh, facilitate that so there are some cases where i get pulled in day one and there are probably the midfoot ones that no one likes but then there are others uh where after four or five sessions maybe we say you know, they've already sown the seed but maybe Maybe meeting with a podiatrist might be a good idea, but let's let's give it a few sessions first, and then see how we go. So I don't know that there's a scenario where people, you know, I'm not too precious about this. I've, heard, I've certainly heard some of, of my podiatry colleagues say, you know, we're the podiatrists. We should uh, we should see the feet if a foot problem. When you know, I've heard people get quite upset that someone with a foot problem doesn't think of a podiatrist first. There's even a whole saying out there like, you think if your teeth hurt, you think of a dentist. When your feet hurt, you should think of a podiatrist. I don't get too precious about this. I don't own the foot. You know, I'm not the only professional that that has knowledge and understanding of assessing and managing feet. So it doesn't, doesn't upset me too much. This season, we decided to sort of focus on
0: what we sort of termed barriers for health. And one, I guess, that we see is people being labeled or tagged or kind of given a a message about whatever their diagnosis and what might be causing it, let's say. So I, I think we could probably all all agree and you probably know what i'm about to say that the one that perhaps is most commonly tagged around the feet that podiatrists might deal with is is over pronation or and that's the one we hear the most so what is over pronation and you know why do why do we hear it so much
2: yeah there's kind of two questions there and one one of them's a lot easier to answer than the other so then what is over pronation is more difficult so i'm going to leave that to for a second why, why do we hear it so much I think it's quite easy uh, to, to answer and we hear it because of its simplicity all of us not just medical professionals but certainly society-wide want things to be as simple as possible because, because we're human and, and you know we're, we're life is crazy and stressful and we're time poor so why would we want something to be more complex than it needs to be and when it comes to the the approach that you're referring to which is something hurts so you go and see someone they make an observation about about the posture you are in at foot level, essentially. Um, they then tell you that's the, the sum total of all of your issues. They give you a solution that they're going to fix you, i.e. change your alignment and make you, uh, you know, ideal or optimal or normal. And then you're going to live happily ever after. I mean, who, who doesn't want that to be true? I mean, the, the, the athlete, the patient certainly does. And, and let's be honest, we'd all, we'd all love if it was true as well. So I think the, the, the recipe book, blanket approach, algorithmic, simplicity of that entire model is the exact reason that we hear it so much. It's the reason it persists, because we, we would love for things to, to be that simple. A little thing called science gets in the way of that, of course, unfortunately. And and this brings us on to the first half of your question there, which is what is overpronation? And um, it's nothing more than a label, as you've already said, that is assigned to people based off of an observation that has been made about their foot posture. Now, the challenges, of course, we have is uh, and if you dig a little bit deeper it's not difficult to find this out that it doesn't have a an agreed upon definition it, it's an incredibly subjective observation i was about to say it isn't like looking at the, the color red and saying that's red and everyone agreeing but then i suddenly realise that's a poor example because not everyone agrees on the color that things are even because so everything's subjective but what one person calls overpronated, another person won't you know there's that subjectivity to it because there's no definitive line in the sand there is no research that tells us when with regard to pronation, which is a normal normal movement, when does pronation become over? You know, when is when is too much too much, so to speak, we don't have that answer. We also don't uh, have any good data or any really, really strong data that, that reliably correlates it with much at all. As you boys know, in the physio world, posture and pain are uh, often um, not correlated as strongly as people assume, and that's no no different when it comes to foot posture. We know that the prospective studies that have looked at more pronated feet and the the promise that they'll definitely give us problems in the future, that doesn't seem to necessarily be the case either. Um, And when it comes to how we treat these problems, again, um, we don't have much data there either just comes back to that simplicity doesn't it people people just want it to be true because it would make life easier but we can't ignore the science and unfortunately um we just don't have solid published work uh, and even even anecdotal stuff really to say that this position is bad and therefore you're overpronated and that's causing your problems we are then going to intervene in this way and we're going to allow you to live happily ever after so it doesn't really have a definition. It doesn't stop people using it. It's the most commonly seen label out there. We see it all over Instagram. It's the worst, it's the Wild West out there on Instagram for terrorizing people about being in bad postures in general, but we also see it in the running magazines. We also know that clinicians use it too. I don't have a problem with people using it, but like I say, it's that label that people then carry with them for the rest of their lives. It, it really does become quite problematic once they've been put into that category, you know, put into that that box, if you like. It really does interfere with their their confidence. It interferes with their. You look at all of you look at a runner who's been told that whether it be six weeks ago or, or six years ago, and they carry it with them. They carry the burden of that of that label with them. Their behaviors, the, the things they do, the things they don't do, the things they think they can or can't do, are all essentially embedded within this belief that they are an overpronator, in, in air quotes. So it's a pretty I'm not the only one but many of us have been petitioning for some time that it's you know people often say to me what's the harm okay I get it it's not you know but but it's it's easy for people to understand it's a word that's out there that people already know so let's just keep using it because it's it's language that runners are familiar with what's the harm it's, it keeps what's a very complex and gray subject it keeps it a, a little bit more sort of simple and hopefully what i can illustrate is the harm is what, all the things we just said i i do believe it is quite harmful to continue using and um it's a fight that, that continues and i think will,
1: will long continue if someone has been so say someone's listening now and they have been previously labeled as an over pronator and they've made behavior changes they've made specific purchases they have orthotics what advice would you give to them now if they're, if they're sitting there listening to this and saying. Oh yeah. Um, oh, actually, that that rings true for me. Hang on a minute. This is weird. What well, I thought I was an over pronator. What what advice would you give to that person?
2: Yeah, it's tricky because we do have scenarios where people may have had a sore medial ankle, what we would know as an irritable or sensitive tibialis posterior, which we know that when that's sore, the movement of pronation will probably annoy it more. In exactly the same way that if my elbow's sore, the more I sort of move it, it's going to contribute to the continuation of that soreness. So if you go into seeing someone with a sore medial ankle and you're told you're an overpronator and you're given stability shoes or foot orthoses, you're probably going to feel better because stability shoes and foot orthoses will offload the medial structures. So in your mind, you've been you were sore, you were told you were an overpronator, you were given a, a a management strategy, you felt better. So what best, it completely validates that whole journey and the, all the things you were told. And now you're of the belief, well, I can't ever not wear these shoes or not wear these orthoses because otherwise I'm an overpronator. So that's the problem. When you feel that your alignment is, is contributing to your pain and then you're given something and you're out of pain, how can you mentally ever accept that you, you could run without those shoes or without those orthoses? Because in your mind, you're going to go back to the same alignment and you're going to get sore again. When the reality is that, Tip post was probably sore because of training error, because we know that's like nine out of ten times that's what the cause is. The intervention offloaded what was sensitive and sore, and with the right approach, you could probably not have to wear that shoe, that orthosis, if you don't want to long term. So it's really difficult when, I, and I've, I've spoken to groups of runners and I've said to them, like, you know, we say look, overpronation is not really a thing, and they will come back and well, I've definitely got it, and you're like well, you know, you haven't because it's, it's not really definable. It isn't really a thing. You've been labeled and I get, when I was told I had it and then I did what they told me to do and I got better. So therefore, there's a really, that's where, you know, I, I that's the reason I started studying motivational interviewing a couple of years ago for that exact reason because how do you really unpick those beliefs? Um, and then you need to ask yourself who benefits from unpicking those beliefs? This isn't really about me sitting here and making sure this person knows that I'm I'm up to date with the literature or I have a contemporary understanding of foot mechanics. It's about this person having goals and 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 uh, functional things they want to achieve in life. And if they're currently sitting there pain-free and running well and performing well in the setup they are, and they believe they're an overpronator, I need to sort of ask myself, this isn't really about me making sure they know that overpronation is not a thing, it's about them achieving their goals. And sometimes it, it might just be best to leave them be, But Another reason, just looping back to sort of why it persists, I said it's kind of this beautiful, simple algorithm. But if you think about it from the runner's perspective or the, the athlete's or the patient's perspective, if you go into you know the medical professional, the physio, the podiatrist, with a sore medial ankle, and you're told you're in bad alignment, you need a Brooks Adrenaline, uh, other shoes are available. I'm not on commission, by the way. You know, you, you need a stability <laughs> shoe. You've got a sore ankle, you're in a bad alignment, you need a stability shoe, you need these orthoses, then you can get back to running you know what what runners want more than anything is to to get back to running quickly with minimal effort minimal minimal uh sort of cost financial cost energy cost you know time resources etc if you go in and say i've got a really sore medial ankle and the, the the medical professional sits down with you and they look through your strava and they say well you're training like a maniac and you're stressed at work and you're not sleeping well your diet is is a horror show should we should we address all four of these things and then you'll probably be a much more resilient robust stronger metabolically efficient runner and they're like i'd rather you just put something in my shoe thanks yeah you could see you can just see how seductive to everyone in the whole in the whole story the clinician who you know isn't up to date or just wants simple life that the patient who just wants a simple life you could just see how the whole thing persists because we all know that injury is complex it's multifactorial the data that i've referred to about foot posture not being particularly predictive of injury is one thing but then we know that all the other things that are more predictive of injury if people want to be told what shoe do i need to buy what do i need to wear inside that shoe and when can i get back up to 40k a week that's kind of what the runners want to do they don't really want to address all of the other facets of, of, of their life so um I've probably gone a little bit off and I've kind of forgot what the original question was, but if someone's sitting there saying, Oh, that does feel like me. I do. I was told I was an overpronator. I'm currently wearing stability shoes and I'm wearing orthoses. What should I do about this? My, 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 my comment to them is that depends. I mean, your action should always depend on what, what your goals are. If your goal is to, if you're currently running three times a week and you're really enjoying your running and it's not like any of us are training for races at the moment, you know, there's no races in the diary and you're just happy with, the amount you're doing, the intensity you're doing, it's good mindfulness time for you, then just stay as you are. Don't change a thing. If you have some desire to stop wearing foot orthoses, which some people do, uh, which is a reasonable desire to have, that's, some, that's something that needs to be discussed. If you have a desire to wear a lighter shoe or if you want a carbon-plated shoe because you've seen them on the TV, again, these are, this should be what colours the discussion. If you are sitting there in stability shoes with foot orthoses and you're still uncomfortable, you know, you're still, uh, you're not running well. You're not happy where you're going. So that's a different discussion again. So uh, being horribly vague, but I think it's difficult to sort of say to people, uh, you know, overpronation is not a thing, throw away your orthoses. That's not the message here whatsoever. The message here is foot mechanics are complicated. Foot mechanics are complex. The relationship between foot mechanics and pain and injury is, is very, very gray. All of that then needs to be laid on top of the individual and their goals and their their starting point their past medical history and things so it's a very very individual discussion sadly
1: if i if i try and summarize it just from my own listening there it it's worth challenging it when it becomes a barrier to progression or to to happiness to to sort of sustaining where your happiness lies with exercise with with activities of daily living otherwise it probably doesn't matter as much they can have the label they can you know carry on buying their stability shoes but if it's becoming a barrier and it's preventing them from doing what they want to do, then it, it may be worth challenging them a bit on that. Is that fair to say? That is a wonderful,
2: brief, concise summary of, of many minutes of my rambling. And There's a really good example of this. My my wife recently likes to wind me up about this stuff. She's not a medical professional at all, but she just, she knows the word overpronation um, grinds my gears a bit and she's a member of these various kind of facebook groups you know mum's mom, groups and civic local group there's a women's running one local to, to where we live and anytime someone kind of puts something up that she knows will, will will possibly annoy me she sort of says oh look look at this and she goes you should comment on this you should you should get involved and of course i never do because that's just just doesn't sound like fun for anyone but there was a recent one which basically someone was saying "Oh, my my um my shins are hurting when i run has anyone got any advice you know the classic scenario of a runner in pain asking strangers on the internet for their opinions and of course there was lots of people who were saying what had worked for them those, those lovely n equals one anecdotes of i'd i, I got some magnesium spray from holland and barrett and i sprayed it on my shin and the pain disappeared and you know follow follow boom, 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 boom. And, and my wife sort of said to me you should get stuck in here and just tell these people what well absolute nonsense magnesium spray but i was like, but but should i because we had a runner who had hurty shins. They sprayed magnesium spray from holding them about on their shins and, they, and now they're happy. Look, I'm not getting involved in that, in, in that discussion. If, if people are happy, then just leave them be happy. If someone comes up to me at a wedding and they hear what I did for a living and they say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm an overpronator. Before I got my Asics Kayano, I was just in pain all the time, but those shoes have really, they really helped me run in neutral again. I'm going to nod and go lovely I'm delighted to hear you doing so well and
1: and I'm leaving it there for sure no doubt you own that that pair of trainer as well so you can have a conversation <laughs> about...
2: well no, no I'm not a stability guy no I, I know I know of the shoes of course uh, I'm nerdy enough to be able to discuss them but yeah I do prefer talking about shoes that I own I've got to say because then you can give it that little personal touch can't you
0: so for all, all folks, we can kind of say you know some will need them, some won't. They're not necessarily a life sentence. If you've been labelled as an overpronator, like like you we've both some uh, you both have summarised nicely. It, sometimes it's worth challenging. Sometimes it's not. It's not a life sentence. You you started talking running shoes. I think that's that's where we, we want to go next. I know we've both in, enjoyed your many many Instagram posts of the shoes that you purchase or are, or, or are lucky to receive. Can you tell us a little bit about one, it's one of your more recent posts. So, you know, picking shoes on comfort and just sort of the evidence around that, because you've, you've done a few sort of series posts on that. Some people may have seen, some people may might not have seen. So tell us a bit about shoes and comfort and, and that sort of stuff.
2: Yeah, this is the, the more sort of modern day philosophy. Of how to choose a running shoe, which is the is the big the big discussion in the running shoe world. It's kind of the only the only discussion really that, that continues to go on. And like anything, if a discussion is continuing for year and year and decade and decade, what we should all realise is that, that we don't have all the answers, or or the discussion would have would have since ended. To give some background to the comfort uh, paradigm or the comfort theory, um, it, it sort of arose, and it's not particularly new; it's a couple of decades old itself. But it arose off the back of the sort of more traditional way before that of recommending shoes being fairly reasonably well debunked by published works so the traditional way being the wet foot test or your foot posture again coming back to foot posture what your foot does whether you have a neutral foot in air quotes a pronated foot or whether you know you have a high arch or a low arch then you you can get kind of pigeonhole people and marry them into certain shoes and that's long since been shown to, to not be a particularly sound way of, of of recommending shoes for any particular reason whatever your goals are whether they be performance maximization injury minimization probably probably a bit of both i would guess matching your foot posture or your arch height to a running shoe, not particularly well founded in science. So off the back of that, if we are going to let go of a, of a, of a theory we've clung to for so many years, as you know, we're, not gonna, we're like a monkey in a tree. We're not gonna let go of one until we've got a good grasp of the next um, branch. And the comfort sort of theory came along, which was ultimately that the human body is very clever, which I don't think any of us would disagree with. And when you find a shoe that the human body says, yeah, this is the good shoe for me, it's gonna be the shoe that's most comfortable. So if you try on 10 pairs of shoes, one of them is probably going to speak to you as being the most comfortable of those 10. Uh, that's the shoe you should be choosing. So you should be led by comfort. And this sort of then trickled into various uh, parts of healthcare and, and, and literature and, and running magazines and even, even sort of down to the runners themselves by, by this day, by present day. And the message has sort of now become, it doesn't really matter what you run in as long as it's comfortable. That's kind of where, where we're kind of at. I'm not suggesting for one second that we shouldn't be wearing something that's comfortable, of course. What I'm saying is that we, we may well have got a little bit carried away. And I'm not the only person to say this once again, there's it's many people saying this, but we may have sort of dropped one model that didn't have really, really strong scientific basis beneath it or foundations. And we may well have adopted another one that although is very very plausible and and intuitive and and um, makes sense to us all doesn't ignore the fact that it's equally lacking in scientific foundation so this this original theory about some sort of the, the comfort paradigm was was ultimately just a theory which is great that's where all good good science starts but i've only found one study that's really looked at it in in any kind of detail and looked at it with respect to picking something comfortable versus not and the people in the group that that chose a shoe that was comfortable had had fewer injuries or a lower injury sort of um, rate and that study has been done but it was done in military population in military boots and part of that comfort was some of them were given insoles as well so it's never been done in running shoes there is not a single published study that's ever really looked at this in the kind of perspective way that we would like so to sit here present day and say we should pick something comfortable don't disagree like I'm not suggesting if there's three or four pairs of shoes that you shouldn't be led by your comfort, but just be mindful that saying, okay, a more comfortable shoe will reduce my injury risk. We're making kind of similar mistakes that we made a couple of decades ago with regard to that. So that was kind of all I was saying. I'm not saying don't be led by comfort. I'm saying let's not get too carried away with the, the benefits we think comfort brings because they are not yet founded. The other thing of course is comfort is a very is a very personal thing. It's very subjective, like most of these things are. So, what I find comfortable isn't what you boys will find comfortable, and there'll be various reasons for that. Which is another, I think, another interesting phenomena when you do look on the internet and you see people reviewing shoes and you see people asking on, on various fora, uh, you know, oh, okay, what's the best shoe for X Y Z? And people are, oh, this is a super comfy shoe. Um, it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to work like that. Other people's opinions probably shouldn't matter to you that much. But also, let's not pretend comfort is a, a fixed f- phenomena. You know, it is a metric that will change in time. So comfort, like I've said, what we three will find comfortable will differ. But what I will find comfortable may differ within day or certainly between day based on how I'm feeling, uh, based on how well I slept the night before, based on what kind of session I've got coming up today. Coming back to why I have so many running shoes, not just because I like them, uh, which I do, but that there is a reasonable um this is what I tell my wife at least there's a reasonable scientific uh, approach to having multiple shoes, which is, you know, buying one shoe that was comfortable in the store back when the stores were open, you go into a store, you try and 10, ten shoes. There's the most comfortable one. Great. I'll, I'll be led by that. I won't get too carried away and assume that my injury risk is now low. I still need to train sensibly and sleep well and eat well and do all those things, but I'm going to be led by comfort. No problem with that. But am I going to find that shoe comfortable a couple of hours later? Am I going to find it comfortable 15K into my long run? Am I going to find it as comfortable for my interval sessions as I do my long slow run? It it just seems like, you know, find a comfortable shoe. I remember one person, I won't mention by name said, shoes are so irrelevant now with all the technologies they give us all the different cushioning uh, and stack heights and drops and and midsole uh, properties. It's all so irrelevant because science has shown that none of it uh, relates to injury that we may as well run with Wellington boots on. And I feel that like that's missing the nuances here because all of those design features very much feed into what might feel comfortable at any given time or what might be best for a certain session.
1: And then I think there's a, another part to it as well, which is basically about human psychology, where if we have worn a set of a branded trainer for a number of years, we're going to have a particular affinity towards that brand perhaps, or you know, so many other factors will start to come into comfort we feel comfortable when when we are attached to this particular brand perhaps or this particular style of trainer you know maybe it is the stability shoe it's you've got this attachment to the stability shoe that that goes way deeper than than the physical characteristics of the shoe so there's so much more to it really isn't there and that's that's the interesting part about comfort like you say you can't just say that's comfortable for everyone because it's it's just influenced by so many different things and then, then then I was just thinking about comfort being dependent on the time of day and it's like you know you get home from work and you slip on a pair of slippers and you think oh yeah that's comfort everyone loves putting on a nice pair of slippers you feel comfortable but you certainly wouldn't want to go for a run in your pair of slippers then that's not <laughs> comfortable so it, it's just so dependent on like you say what you're trying to do what type of run you're going on perhaps so I think that might be a, a good thing to lead on to so You mentioned about multiple shoes, multiple trainers. I think firstly, it'd be nice to clarify what you mean by multiple. How many trainers have you got? But secondly, if you would be able to just tell us why you'd need different types of shoes and what they would be for, why you might rotate around certain different ones.
2: I have uh, somewhere between 45 and 50 pairs of shoes. And I say between because the last time I was asked that question, I counted and it was 45 I've definitely had two pairs arrive since then. And I've got one pair that just shipped today via email. So it's going to be, it's going to be close to 50 than it is 45. Now I'm not suggesting that people need to have that many, of course. Um, And when you look at them, although there may be 50 pairs of shoes on the shelves in my study, if you were going to bunch them together with regard to some of their characteristics, so the ones with carbon fiber plates or the ones with big toe springs or the ones with high drops or lots of cushioning, you could essentially say oh there's really only about six pairs of shoes here if that makes sense Um, you know six pairs of you know they're all, they're all kind of more similar than they are different so to speak of those i would say there's probably 18 or so that are in regular rotation so i run five days a week at the moment so obviously you can only wear one pair at a time there's only five pairs of shoes getting worn at any given week but to be honest some of those shoes probably haven't been worn for for five or six months because they're just not in favor at the moment because of again because what what you find comfortable today may not be what you found comfortable six months ago based on how you progress as a runner you know your running technique may change your strength may change and um you go through phases obviously with no race day the kind of shoes that you would normally you know the really light ones that you would normally probably just pull out for a, a 10k race or a half marathon they they're gathering dust at the moment as well so I have 45 to 50. You do not need that many. I do believe every runner needs more than one for sure, which we'll come on to, but you certainly don't need 45 whatsoever. That's just kind of my, that's my thing, right? I, I, I don't have any vices in life. I'm, I'm pretty dull, middle-aged, bald man with a wife and two children. I don't get to do much stuff for the fun anymore. So I'm homeschooling. I, shoes are my thing. So um, I would say, you know, what's the best way to, to say this? when we look at some of their characteristics and what what we may want from a shoe, or we, I guess probably the most sensible way is to think, you know, explain to you when, when I reach for a shoe, why I reach for that shoe. And I do an awful lot of my running uh, easy, which uh, it's just a, it's not the only way to train. I'm not saying it's the best way to train, but it's certainly a philosophy that just speaks to me and speaks to my aging bones. So of the sort of 60, 50 to 60 kilometers a week, I run 80% of it at least will be very, very easy, easy effort. So conversational pace, zone two, heart rate, whatever, however you want to refer to it, kind of that 80-20 running Maffetone method, method that, that you guys are probably familiar with. So for easy runs, I just want, it's just time on your feet, just spending time on my feet, building that aerobic base. And, and I think most people just want, could just benefit from something pretty pretty comfortable for that. You know, that's where comfort does really become key. Um, so really cushioned shoes. I, I And again, this is just speaking to my own, individuality i'm very tight in my posterior chain i've got very tight calves i've got very uh, restricted ankle range i've got very stiff and arthritic big toes so essentially in the sagittal plane ankle joint big toe joint i'm not a great mover and given that running is a sagittal plane um task that's you could argue that's a problem so things like a high drop uh, they really really help my my calf they really help me because of my limited ankle range and things with a big toe spring or quite quite a, a high uh, a rocker sole you know what i mean when i say toe spring i'm sure you guys do but hopefully this is a, a big toe spring or a rocker sole kind of geometry they really help me sort of those two characteristics really help me get through my ankle through my big toe and if i'm spending four hours on my feet a week in just really really slow easy pace i want i just want something cushioned because i i just like cushioning it's just something that is isn't what everyone's going to want but i quite like big Stack quite so things like the Asics Nova Blast, the New Balance 1080. These are the shoes that easy run days. Like, I'm always reaching for. If I am doing something a bit faster, uh, like a tempo session or an interval session, then I usually want something that feels a bit lighter and may even have one of the carbon plates in, just so I can feel like I'm cheating a little bit. Um, but the other thing that I really like a carbon plate for is because again. I think people with arthritic stiff big toes like I've got are going to like carbon plated shoes because the shoe doesn't bend as much in that in that forefoot. And therefore, it just takes a bit of pressure off my big toes. So I'll do those. I'll use those on speed days. If I'm really, really sore in my calves, I'll reach for the shoes with the higher drop. If I'm doing something faster, I reach for something lighter. But like I say, all of my shoes, there, they're kind of more similar than they are different. The only other thing then you need to factor in, I think, other than the way you feel is the environment you're in that's kind of important too so if it's a lovely sunny day and you're you know you're just doing easy miles on the road it probably doesn't matter quite so much but at the moment when it might be icy or you might be going down canals or towpaths or trail running it's going to be wet it's going to be muddy it's going to be slippery there are some shoes that you then need to say well this shoe is like the so one of my favorite shoes at the moment is the uh, adidas adios pro which is their new carbon plated shoe and the one that's just taking a couple of world records away from the vapor the nike vaporfly and it's a serious shoe it's like super comfy really thick stack height just really speaks to my anatomy but the bottom of it is about as smooth as the top of a macbook pro you know this thing if there was an even a slight chance of drizzle one day then there's no way i'm reaching for that shoe so again the it might be that the task i, I want to perform that shoe that the cushioning that the carbon plate fits it but but the environment doesn't. So you've got to then start looking at the outsole, the upper. I don't truly believe any shoes are waterproof, to be honest. And I've kind of got to the stage now where if I'm running in the rain, I'm just going to get wet feet. I'm just going to live with it. But there are some shoes that are a little bit better than others. So that's when you need to start saying, okay, what does the outsole look like? What does the upper look like? Is it fit for environment? Is it fit for task? What shoe should I reach for based on where I'm sore today or how I'm, how I'm feeling or what my anatomy is like in general. Does that make sense? Yeah, It
0: does. You, you sort of touched on carbon plates. I'm, I'm only bringing this, this up because this is, you know, probably the newest or one of the newest developments in sort of shoe technology that we all are aware of, certainly in running shoes. What are they about? Are they worth it? You know, they, they obviously increase the price of the trainer, which, you know, you have to take 50% off before you tell the wife the price. That's fine. That <laughs> We all know how to do that. But, you know, what are they
2: about? Tell us a bit about them. You know, I saw this brilliant website the other day, which basically, said like when you were checking out there was a little box <clears throat> and it said do you need you t- check this if you need an alibi we'll send a we'll send a message saying congratulations on winning this gift <laughs> <That's genius. laughs> um, that would that would be useful what they're about yet yeah, they've hit the news there's a lot of that you know when they first came out everyone was like no way a shoe can make people faster shoes just don't do that and then there was a lot of people traditionalists that were saying this is unfair because you know these runners are It's it's the runner that deserves the credit, not the shoe. And the shoe has very much taken over the story. I've even seen some some articles that have talked about shoes and sort of of align them with things like performance-enhancing drugs, you know, like EPO and and things. And you're like, okay, let's not try and take too much away from the runner here. You still have to run when you put a shoe on. But that said, we do have science. There is published work, and it's pretty compelling that um, these shoes do improve performance. Now, again, like anything the improvements and the you know how much you benefit from them if at all will be person specific and that's no different to you know if we take paracetamol we don't all respond biologically or or, you know um, physiologically identical to to a drug that we take so why would we respond the same to a shoe so there's going to be person-to-person variants but they make people faster on the whole and if you've been following any major road race over the last 18 months two years you'll see um just world records are just tumbling and they're all in these shoes now there is a possible uh, issue with the data here in that these are the people that are breaking the world records and they're the people that are sponsored um, you know by the, by these companies but ultimately you know i speak to people who are really good runners i've got several friends who who run sort of around anywhere between i think my fastest friends like a like a two a 209 marathon runner so you know he's, he's no slouch I've Got guys i know they're into the 220s the 230s you speak to all these guys and and you know, forget the science, forget the published work, they are wearing these shoes on race day. And when you ask them why, they say, well, why would I not? The biggest one, and I hope he doesn't mind me dropping in my name, uh, is Derek Griffin, who I know you probably both know from Twitter, who uh, is a lovely guy, despite getting punchy and fighty on Twitter all the time. When I I spoke at a conference with him a couple of years ago, and we sat down, we went for a run together, actually, we had really good chats about this stuff. And he, for a long long time, has been a very strong proponent um, of Lightweight shoes, racing shoes, racing flats, and you know the guy can seriously shift. So he found what worked for him, and he's more recently been running in carbon-plated shoes. And when you ask him why, and he's very open about this. He says, "Why would I handicap myself by not?" You know that that's the mentality, that's the reality that we're now in. You or I, um, you know, us, us, us sort of uh, people much further down down the down the pack, um, do we benefit from them in the same way? We don't really know all I'll offer here is anecdote. anecdote. Um, and like I say, I'm a very average runner, but I've run in a lot of shoes. So I feel like I'm, I'm reasonably placed to talk. They feel really, really different. If you've never put your, your feet in a pair, they feel really, really different. I'm not certain. That, in fact, no, I am certain that you shouldn't be running in them all the time. So if you are the runner, that's just going to buy one pair of shoes and do every single training session and everything in them, I don't feel that should probably be a carbon plated shoe um it just doesn't make sense to me we don't have long-term understanding yet of what the ramifications of, of a carbon plate under your foot may be for the foot or for even more proximal structures um i guess that will that will become more apparent over time with regard to yeah you know, I, I just feel like there has to be there has to be some kind of um there's always a trade-off isn't there if you you can't you can't bring something into the system that is the ecosystem that is the human body and it only give you good things that's just that's not the way things work if you put something on my foot and you make me faster you make me perform better four percent or otherwise whatever it may be there has to be a trade-off there I, I don't know what it is i don't know when it's coming but i just don't see how this can only only give us good things we, we might be robbing pizza to pay paul we don't yet know what the the relationship between um improving performance that much and injury risk may be and it may be for some people there's there's no risk at all it may be for others that that it makes them tread a line that's a bit more risky but i would say i'm biased here i've got 10 11 12 pairs of carbon plated shoes whatever they are and they're super fun to run in and would i wear them on race day despite the fact i'm going to be in the middle of the pack regardless yeah i definitely would Running's supposed to be fun they feel fun they feel fast could be placebo the data tells us they make people faster but what it doesn't tell us is, is why, um, you know, we don't know why yet, but they're, they're loads of fun. They're expensive though. If you're a runner who is listening, who I'm just trying to think, I mean, I just think all runners should buy one pair because they're that much fun, right? Just, mm-hmm. just do it. Just, you know, I was about to say, you don't need to, but actually it's just fun. Why would you not? They're, they're 200, you know, you can pick up a pair for 200 quid now, depending on which model you go for, and which brand, all brands have them now, of course. And um, in the big scheme of things, as a runner i do not believe that you have not spent 200 quid on worse stuff you know these are runners that are telling me oh my goodness you know like i, I i've never paid that much for a pair of shoes yet yeah, they've got a 150 pound theragum you know they've got you know, add up all of the other stuff that you're buying all of the kind of nutrition that you're buying the the, the flip belt you know the the free train, you know, you, you know, you you know what it's like, uh, Andy. You know, we've had these discussions at every level. You know, there's a discussion to be had. What socks should I wear? Okay, now what what should I w- rub on myself for chafing? I'll get get some of that kind of um, instead of just applying Vaseline. Now people spend twenty quid on anti chafing things. You know, running gloves. I need to get a special ones of those. People have got like four hundred pound Garmin's on their wrist. All I'm saying is, if you're a runner, you'll find two hundred quid for a, for, a, for a pair of shoes if you if you want to, and they're just so much fun that I would. Highly encourage you sir to have a pair in the rotation.
1: I, I mean, I'm sold. By the way, I, I'm definitely going to be getting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm
2: not on commission by the way. I'm not
1: on commission. But uh, I think just going back to the argument around performance enhancing, um, not necessarily. I think it's the, the whole discussion is is well worth another episode. On I'm sure you've spoken about it on on your own podcast. that but what, what I find really interesting is is that so many sports already regulate against um, technology. But running has never had to because it's never really been shown to make any difference. So at some point, you know, as techn- technology advances, I wonder if they have to, will have to start regulating, you know, like Formula One, you know, like the cycling. There's so much regulation to stop them getting too much enhancement of performance and to make it unfair towards people who can afford those things. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily think we're there yet because like you say, £200 is not a huge amount of money to spend. But where could it go? You know, where does it stop?
2: Yeah, I mean, and they have taken steps uh, with regard to legislation of shoes, not at our level. If we want to go and run the uh, the Brentwood Half Marathon together, you know, we can wear whatever we want. It doesn't really matter uh, in the same way that we're probably not going to get tested for EPO either. doesn't mean we should be doing it, of course, um, <laughs> but at, at, at sort of um, at, a, at a higher level, you know, at, 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 there are certainly... Uh, rules and regulations now about footwear so there are certain shoes that that, that uh, can and can't be worn for certain events particularly on the track so they've limited the stack height on the track so you certainly had scenarios maybe a year ago where people were turning up for like a ten thousand meter race on the track which traditionally everyone would have would have essentially worn spikes for and there were there were a few you'd see people on the line wearing vapor flies 30 35 40 mil stack height um The other thing that we haven't mentioned about these shoes is that they don't just allow you to run hard and fast at the time, but afterwards you don't The the thing I found fascinating was you'd run hard and fast and go, well, that shoe really made me feel fast. But the other benefit they have is you get home and your legs don't feel like they've worked quite so hard. So from a concept of recovering quicker and running harder again sooner and allowing you to train better, that it kind of feels a bit like cheating in in that regard as well. So, yeah, they definitely started legislating at at a higher level You know, for people that are, are, are taking this more seriously and a far more skilled and accomplished than us. But I I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where it goes from, from, from there. Yeah. It's an interesting, interesting scenario. Again, if we are now in a position where we're admitting shoes can influence performance positively, which like you say, we, we perhaps didn't believe historically, it does bring us full circle around to that discussion of if we can, you know, performance and injury are so closely interrelated If a shoe can influence performance, are we really in a position where we're totally comfortable saying that it can't influence injury? And I've often said to people, you know, and again, the answer is we don't fully know, but I speak to people that swear to me that a shoe has injured them. And I'm not necessarily saying that they're right or that that it did, but they they swear to me that, that a shoe injured them. Now, if that's the case, if a shoe has the ability to injure someone, then by definition, it probably has the ability to prevent injury. If you see what I mean. Prevent being a very bold word, I I try not to use too much. But I don't think we're in a position where we can say super confidently, shoes will never, ever be able to to prevent injury. Because if they can cause it, then then, theoretically, they can prevent it. You you can't have it both ways. You can either do both or none, right?
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess the final thing I, I think people... Ask us a lot, and it's probably worth having um, a, a short discussion on. Is what are we talking? In how long they last? You know, when should I be thinking
2: about changing my trainers if I've been running them regularly? Yeah, I get asked this one a lot too. Another benefit to having multiple pairs, by the way. Uh, I'm not just trying to sort of justify myself this to myself. Um, Your wife's the, not on uh, the call, by the way. <laughs> but, but again, you the idea of kind of buying one pair and just running it into the ground and then having to buy another pair that just doesn't happen when you've got multiple pairs in rotation they it's a bit like when you used to buy a suit and the, the you know the tailor would say to you do you want a spare pair of trousers because you know the, the trousers are, the jacket's always going to outlast the trousers whereas if you've got two pairs in rotation they won't wear out so quickly so you can see that there was a paper published i've done an instagram carousel on this and i probably should uh, Probably should pull it up and see if I can get the exact. There's a paper, and I think it was in around 2011, and it was in Footwear Science, and it basically talked about this and and said that the suggestions on the lifespan of a shoe that you can find out there range from anywhere as low as 250 kilograms, all the way up to uh, kilograms uh, kilometers, right up to a thousand kilometers, which is a pretty wide, pretty wide spectrum, as you can imagine. And 250 kilometers for a lot of runners might just be a month you know if you're in what that one shoe every run then you're what you're saying is this person needs 12 pairs of shoes a year which is which is crazy whereas actually if you've got 12 pairs in rotation you can kind of see the benefit of that now but that's the range that you can find and, and ultimately um why why do we tell people to change their shoes and the answer is uh, kind of, kind of depends on what what you're wearing that shoe for in the first place so for example it comes back to the the task you're wearing the shoe for, the environment you're wearing the shoe in. So for example, if you, I see a lot of runners, I'm sure you do that say to me, they're worried about the way they're wearing this shoe out underneath, worried about the way my shoe's wearing. Zero link between that and injury, by the way. But if you have bought this particular shoe because it's outsole has a lot of traction because you do all your running on the trails, then when that starts to wear out, that is a, whatever the, whatever the distance you've run is irrelevant. The task that that shoe was performing, it's now going to find more difficult to perform. So I'm not saying, you know, if you, if it wears out at 200 kilometers, then you need to replace that shoe at 200 kilometers. It doesn't mean you need to replace all shoes at 200 kilometers. It means this was a shoe you bought specifically for the traction of its outsole. Once that wears down, it's no longer fit for purpose. Likewise, if you buy shoes for their cushioning, runners are very attuned to the feel of their shoe at some point, the, when that just feels like it's, it's not giving you what it gave you originally, whether that's at 200 kilometers or 800 kilometers, it's time to replace it. So I try and say to people, always think of the life of a shoe in in distance rather than time. So that, you know, people say to me, "This shoe's three months old." Doesn't tell me anything, you know, because three months for one person might be 100 kilometers for another. It might be a thousand. So always think of shoes and their age in distance, but never just assume that there's this number. And you know, when you add your shoes to Strava now, you know so you can say which runs you did them in which tells you how many how many kilometers or miles you run in each of them there's a little box that says to you do you want do you want us to remind you when or give you a warning when the shoe gets to i don't know what it is like 500 kilometers i was like no because that that number's arbitrary it's irrelevant you know you're not going to be midway imagine if a shoe cutoff point was like we need to change our shoes at 500 kilometers and i've run 497 kilometers in this pair of shoes and i intend to go out for a 10k you telling me at the 4k mark of that run all of a sudden this shoe does something different or this shoe now becomes a hazard to me you know it's just such an arbitrary number but I know again we, we like we like those numbers so I would say think about what the shoe's doing for you if it stops doing those things it's no longer fit for purpose let me I've just pulled it up here just because I, I can't I'm not going to pretend I could remember this but there's been a few studies that have looked at the actual qualities of the shoe and how they change over repetitive loading cycles i.e you know they usually do them in a lab. We, we use one loading cycle as, as, as a step, so to speak. And this one suggested, this was from 1985. It suggested that the shock absorption that's retained in the shoe, at uh, 80 kilometers, it's 75% shock absorption retained. And that goes down to 60% shock absorption retained between 400 and 480, which should make sense to us that the older the shoe becomes, those materials, are their shock absorption ability reduces we'll come back to that in a second. There was another paper I'd done that said at 500 kilometers of a shoe, your the pressures on your feet uh, increase, which kind of ties in with if the shoe's not absorbing shock quite so well, then probably your foot gets a bit more pressure. And at 750 kilometers, structural damage tends to occur in the EVA. Now, again, a lot of shoes nowadays actually aren't made of EVA anymore. They're made of all these fancy foams and things, so we don't have any data on those. But going back to that original comment that you can read as low as 200, as high as 1,000, and then what we can see there is that as the shoe ages through 400, 500, 750, we get reduced shock absorption, higher foot pressures, damage in the materials of the shoe. That kind of all makes sense. It's not rocket science. Everyone kind of going, yep, yeah, obviously. But the next question we need to ask is what's the relevance there? Because none of those none of those things have been linked to anything. So it's all well and good saying at a certain time, the shoe uh, loses properties; it loses shock absorption. None of those have been shown to increase injury risk. That's that's the key thing. Um, you know, increased plantar foot pressures hasn't been shown to increase injury risk. Again, it makes sense that it might, but we just it just hasn't been shown. And there was one study where they actually and I can't remember. Forgive me for not remembering the reference, but they actually took people and they ran them in a shoe when it was fairly new, and then after like 300k or whatever it was, they ran them in the shoe again and they looked at how this same runner moved in a shoe that was old versus new. I think it was the BJSM this one. And they basically showed that there wasn't a massive amount of difference because what do we know? That the human body and the central nervous system is so intelligent and smart that it can modify and adapt based on the changes that occur in the shoe. So essentially your own intelligent suspension system can ask you to do something a wee bit different based on the changes that the shoe's undergoing. So we got all this stuff out there about the way shoes age and what they look like uh, in the lab at certain distances, but none of it links back to the question, which is when should I change my shoes so I don't get injured? Uh, I would always say to people, if you've got loads of shoes in rotation, I just don't see how you'd ever really get to a point where a shoe got to the end of its life in theory. I've got a pair of shoes up there added uh, Boston Boost sixes or sevens and they've got 1430 kilometers of on them I know you know that because it's it's on Strava and they still feel pretty good you know they still feel pretty fit for purpose um, so again if the shoe and the qualities that you like about that shoe and the if if the task and the environment that you is right that makes you reach for that shoe is still appropriate then I don't think that shoe needs to be retired regardless
1: of its life thanks a lot if anyone else wants to get some more information, I'd highly recommend Ian's Instagram page. That's at sports podiatry Info. It's a brilliant page. He's got quite creative with his time off over lockdown, I believe. He's worked pretty hard at his carousel game. So um, take a look if you're not already following. One final, one final thing would just be, um, I know you're a reader. I know you like to read a lot of books and not necessarily all about podiatry either what if it it, what's been your favorite book of the year or what what would you recommend to someone as something that might be a bit left field something a bit different but interesting
2: nerdy and passionate about my career as i am and as much as i could ramble on for hours as you can probably tell about this i very rarely read books about it um journals yes but not books that said i do read books that weirdly kind of tie back in so I know you boys are both into these as well, but I'm really into books about humans and about human behaviour and human psychology and and beliefs and kind of things like that. So I've I've actually over lockdown been been rereading some old classics from the shelf. Uh, so I've always been a big fan of Ben Goldacre, who I've got his three books. Uh, one bad science was was the first one I read of his, which I think I, I actually would encourage any anyone who's any kind of student of science whether they be you know bachelor bachelor's level or postgrad just to give give that a read because it just really really it's a really lovely way of just saying okay do i do i critically appraise my things in my life enough so i think bad science by ben gold ben goldacre is brilliant i also love uh professor richard wiseman's books he's a he's a professor at university of uh, hertfordshire actually and i've got a few, a few of his books uh, which are really really good they're probably my two Authors that I always go back to. I think I've read. I've got both all of both both of those authors. I've got all of their books, and I probably I go back to them a couple of times a year. What have I read this year that was really interesting? Because I I, I I ordered a shed load like most people, at the start of lockdown one. so March April, 2020. I was like, okay, I'm going to be super efficient here. I'm going to learn three languages, two musical instruments. I'm going to read a book a week. Uh, totally underestimated what after Carnage homeschooling was gonna be. I bought bought about seven books and maybe I've read two of them in, in in a calendar year. Some of them are still sitting on there ready to read. But the one I've sort of made some inroads into in the last few weeks is um uh, Range by Epstein David Epstein I'd read The Sports Gene his book I think he's a brilliant brilliant writer um, so I've made some inroads into that in the last few weeks so that's the kind of one I'm into at the moment. But yeah I'd love to say I'd be reading one a week that was, that's not been happening
1: yeah I've got range on the bookshelf ready to read actually not ready yet but um, you got it yeah I yeah. enjoyed I enjoyed the sports gene that was that was good yeah, to read. sports gene was good sports gene was really good
2: yeah I've heard it was a friend of mine who who you know you've, we've all got that one friend who generally he likes what you like and you know if he you know he, he recommends you a book you, you pretty much you go on Amazon you buy it you buy it there and then it was a friend of mine and we were having the chat about the sports gene he said to me you've read range right I was like no I haven't yet." he's like get it read so yeah here we are well thank you for that ian uh
0: that's been really interesting i think for us as well like you know we work as physiotherapists but it's interesting to to hear all of these things especially about training shoes cycling you know carbon plates and whatnot it's really interesting as charlie said you can find him on instagram loves a bit of instagram this man also <laughs> just got a new website which is looking slick
2: what's the address for your website it is uh, sportspodiatryinfo.co.uk.
0: Nice, and there is also. Are you doing the new therapy live as well? There's another therapy live. Are You on that? You're lecturing and speaking and whatnot.
2: Regularly no, too. I've I've done the last two therapy lives because uh, they were kind of relevant. This one's on pelvic health, so quite rightly, right. I didn't get the I didn't get the call, yes. and I'm, de- I'm delighted about that.
0: <laughs> Swerve that one, yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> okay, so all-, all, all
2: nice, but there's there's plenty out there and lots of stuff
0: where you, you've. Um, presented and spoke about all these similar topics so if people want to find uh, that if you if they get in contact with us then we can always direct them
2: to any of the talks that you've done recently yeah i know you've heard it all before mate so i appreciate you uh, sitting there pretending to be interested nodding yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm normally checking their fantasy scores whilst, uh, whilst <laughs> <laughs> nice thank you mate pleasure thanks for having me
0: So, Charlie, that was really interesting. Um, obviously, we both we both have worked with podiatrists for some time now, but um, I found Ian's perspective on, you know, essentially kind of working out what's right for you a lot of the time, not necessarily following too many of the trends, too many of the kind of people shouting about, you know, overpronation. You've got to have this shoe. You've got to have that shoe. You can't wear this. You know, I think it's nice to hear someone talk about the grey a little bit and not just be
1: quite, you know, black or white it was exactly. i really enjoyed it yeah being okay in the gray i think that's really important you know science is is evolving and developing but there's still so much that we don't know that it's really important that we're okay to say sometimes that we're not really sure actually if you do fancy those trainers that have got nice colors on them and look, look fancy you're quite often going to be okay i think there's some really key tips that people can take away especially runners that that uh, maybe are only using one pair of trainers wearing them to the ground and then getting another one you know having a couple of pairs in rotation probably makes sense i think even personally i'm gonna to have to get myself a pair of carbon carbon plates for for the next race just to knock a couple of minutes off my time so yeah i think there's things that you can take away from it plenty of plenty of good science in there even though it's it's in the gray there's plenty of good stuff to consider I think
0: there's, there's, some, uh, there's some ideas as well going around in my head as well for, for, for future podcasts on these kind of, you know, the, the psychology bit, a bit about the sort of taglines being labelled. I think we should maybe look at trying to get a guest on about, you know, the effect of the sort of psychological effect of being labelled as, you know, in this episode of Pro, Overpronator or whatnot. We'll try and find something to talk about that kind of psychological aspects of being labelled maybe or, or something along those lines that could be really interesting.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it'd be really nice to hear from someone who has had an experience in the past with being labelled as an overpronator or, or, you know, any of the subjects that have come up today, really. But particularly anyone that's been a pronator that's maybe really changed the way they live their life as a result of that. It'd be good to hear from you, maybe what you've done about it, how, how it has affected you. Has it created a barrier? Has it, has it created a barrier to progressing and doing the things that you want to do? Um, so it'd be lovely to hear from, from anyone. So you can contact us on Instagram at the the healthspace, or you can email us uh, on our email address, which is thehealthspace.co at gmail.com. Um, yeah, it'd be great to hear from, from anyone with with any thoughts on that.
0: Last final thing, a little bit of a, a sales pitch for ourselves. Like, comment, um, subscribe to the podcast. That's what keeps us going. Those are the things that enable us to, or people to find our podcast more frequently. And it's always nice to hear Uh, reviews positive and negative that can help us improve as we go through this journey
1: thank you again goodbye see you again thanks for listening if you've enjoyed the show subscribe and give us a five-star rating we'll keep bringing you the gold follow us on instagram at the.healthspace and for any questions or ideas for future content email us at thehealthspace.co at gmail.com